This morning, we are actually starting a new sermon series um, on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. And before I read the text for this morning, I just want to kind of catch you up where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 3, um, Jesus is baptized. And then we come to Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted. And at the end of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls his disciples. And the very first thing he does after calling his disciples is he goes up on a mountain, and he sits, and he begins to teach. And what he's doing there is he's telling everyone, hey, what you've seen about me so far, I'm going to sort of reveal to you what my ministry is and what I'm inviting you into um, and and what the kingdom of God looks like, what it actually looks like to be a part of what I'm doing. And so with that context, let me read the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside And sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, For they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, From now until Lent, we're going on this journey of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the Beatitudes, and we'll look at the texts that follow it. Um, But I want to kind of like set in your mind the idea of a journey. You know, in a journey, you know where you are, right? You're going to a place. You know how you're going to get there. And, and, you know, historically, humans have gone on crazy journeys, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of Vasco da Gama, but he actually uh, went from Portugal to India, and he opened up a trade route in... uh, 1380, something like that, and it took him 32 days to make his way to Portugal. And he lost two ships on the journey along the way. He lost men that he had taken with him, and it took him 132 days to get back. I don't know, you know, just zigzagging back up wind, I guess, but can you imagine going on a 160-plus-day journey? Or think about Roald Amundsen in 1910. From 1910 to 1912, he went from Norway to the South Pole, and to this day, lots of different areas on the South Pole are named after him. But it's a two-year journey. But his journey was a little different. He still knew where he was, and he knew where he was going, and he got there, and he got back home. But actually, he really didn't lose anybody on the journey. He was well-prepared. They had dogs. They had trained these dogs. They knew how to run these dogs. They explored um, Antarctica, and then they make their way back, and they report what happened. Now, as a follower of Christ, you might feel like, as someone who's on this journey of knowing Him, you might identify more with one of those journeys than the other. Maybe it's the first journey, where there's just casualties along the way, and it's just difficult, and it's tough, and it's hard, and you're trying to figure out, like, I don't know, you know, I want to follow Jesus, I'm trying to trust in Him, but it is just tough. Like, it's tough, it's, you know, it's just, it's hard. This journey is tough. I found out who He is, and now I'm on my way back, and it's a 130-day trip, Right? Or maybe it's like the second journey, and you're like, no, I know, I'm prepared, I'm, I know what I need, I feel like I'm doing all right, like things are going kind of like I thought they should, 
and I'm on this journey, and yeah, let's talk more about that journey. Like, people are in different places when you think about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to know Him. So I want you, I want you to kind of take your understanding of what it means to follow God and what it means to know Jesus, and just for a moment, just kind of forget all of it for a second. And I want you to hear these words from Jesus as, as His people did, His disciples. He calls His disciples in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. He says, now, I'm going to talk to you about what it means to follow me. You know, I'm going to talk to you about what it means to know me. Whatever ideas you have, I want you to put them aside. I'm going to talk to you about what it means to experience the blessed life. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling his people, this is where we are. This is where I'm taking you. This is where you will get. I'm going to do this in you. The Sermon on the Mount has been called, you know, the, the ethics of the new kingdom. People have um, called it different things throughout the ages. John Stott said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said it's probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. It's the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it's his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. And so the Sermon on the Mount is inviting us both in our minds to think about what it means to know God, but also in our lives to live in light of knowing Him. That's what, that's what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ. Another um, commentator said this, and I love this, the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, these 12 verses, form an appropriate introduction to Jesus' sermon as they remind the disciples that God blesses them before He makes demands on them. God blesses them before He makes demands on them. This is such an important paradigm to understanding how to come to God, how to approach God, what it means to be a Christian. God blesses, Jesus, Jesus already has a relationship with his disciples. He's blessing them before he gives them any commands. He's sitting down. The relationship is established. He wants to bless them. So what does that mean? Have you ever had someone say, God bless you? Maybe you sneezed. I was doing that. Um, you know, the Lord bless you. Maybe you hear in our, our benedictions at the end of worship, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. Like, what does it mean to bless? Or maybe people say, and it's just kind of casual, I'm so blessed. Like, sometimes I hear that and I get a little nauseated. I'm like, Ugh, yeah, yeah, okay, you're so blessed. Like, what, is that, what does that mean that you're so blessed, right? What does it mean for us to be blessed? It's the idea, if I, if I could redefine it for you for a second, the idea of being blessed is that you are one who is experiencing the love of God in your life, both in your heart, that you're, you know God loves you, but also it's actually beginning to shape your relationships, and it's beginning to shape how you think about other people. It's beginning to shape what you think is most important and most critical. That's the idea of being blessed. Now, you know, I'm not really for just, you know, bragging about being blessed. I know what people mean by that, and I think it's a good thing. We should talk about being blessed. But there's actually, if you're turned off by this, you're with me a little bit, there's actually a calling Jesus is giving us here that's saying, if you will follow me, if you will trust me, if you'll hear these words, I'm actually going to lead you into something. I'm going to lead you into the blessed life. The last verse, verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. God is inviting you to trust Him because he has, he has good things for you. You know, the Old Testament says this, if you obey my commandments, it will go well with you. Now, we kind of twist that and think, you know, if, I obey my, if we obey your commandments, then you'll love me. No, no, no. If you obey my commandments, it will go well with you. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount here, which we'll study for this next seven weeks, but in the Beatitudes in particular, is saying, if you want to know what you're wired for, if you want to know what you're made for, this is it. 
Like, I, I've created you to thrive in this place. This is who you are. So, what we're going to talk about this morning, just three ideas, is how this, this, this section of Scripture is very personal, and it's provocative, and it's powerful. It's very personal, it's provocative, and it's powerful. And so, first, being personal. If you go back again and you read these first couple of verses, this is a personal experience. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And so Jesus sees that these people are there, and he doesn't just kind of mingle around or whatever. He actually goes up onto a mountainside. And as he's there, the people begin to sit around him. And the disciples come, and they're drawn to him. In other words, Jesus doesn't just notice that they're there. He actually wants to communicate with them. He wants to speak with them. Now, there are times where my wife, Jamie, will say, hey, Brad, come here, I want to show you something. And I'm, you know, in the middle of something really important or not, you know, but I think it's important. And I go over there and I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's great. Oh, man, that, that's amazing. And then, like, 20 minutes later, she'll bring it up again or maybe the next day, and I'll be like, what? Like, I, I don't have any recollection of that. Like, my heart wasn't captured by whatever it is you were showing me. Um, I saw her, but I didn't, like, see her, right? Jesus, his heart, if you want to think about it this way, his heart is captured by his people, so much so that he wants to sit with them and he wants to talk to them. It is, it is right to say Jesus' love for his people, he's cap, he's, they're, he, they're capturing him and he wants to talk to them. He's saying, I want you to know these things because I love you and I, I want you to be, experience this blessedness, these rewards that I'm preparing for you. I want you to be part of my kingdom. Christ wants his people to know that he sees them and he loves them. And so he goes up on the mountain. And what he doesn't do is scream at them. You know, maybe, you know, in your mind, when you think about how does God respond to you if, you don't, if you're not really in sync with him. Jesus doesn't scream at these people. He doesn't manipulate them. He doesn't, he doesn't destroy them. He, you know, he's actually, we read in the book of Colossians, right, that Jesus is the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things were created. That he holds all things together by the word of his power. It wouldn't have been unreasonable for Jesus to walk in and go, worship please, I shall accept it. After all, I made you, every molecule. What does he do? He goes to the mountainside and he sits. And the crowds see and they sit around him and the disciples see and they sit around him. And Jesus begins to talk to them about what it means to access the blessed life. And so he gives this sermon. It's very personal. When you think about your relationship with God, do you, do you understand God is not just, these scriptures aren't just kind of there for you to maybe generally think about. Uh, they're not there because they apply to a lot of people who might be like you and might not apply to you. No, 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 no. The scriptures are personal. You're actually meant to sort of re-enter this and think, okay, I'm going to sit at Jesus' feet this morning. I'm going to listen to his idea of what it means to access this kingdom of heaven, this blessed life. What is it? And so, the, sec the second point is that the Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount is provocative. It actually provokes us. Listen to these things again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you listen to those things, is the first thing that comes to your mind, well, that's the stuff of making a warrior right there. Like, that will make you just the you know, ultimate fighting champion, right? 
It's, it's not exactly what we might think when Jesus says this is the way towards experiencing his blessings. It's a little bit counterintuitive. There's a, there's, there's a, there's text, if you read these, one of the, some of them, the first four or whatever, are about the way in which you think. And then the others are about the way in which you interact with other people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, if I tell you what does it mean to be poor, physically, you know what that means. And maybe some of you in this room have even experienced like being financially destitute. You know what that's like. But the scriptures here are talking about this idea of being poor in spirit. And if you understand what it's like to be poor physically, then you can take that metaphor and understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean for us to be poor in spirit? Listen to Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christians should be the most humble of people. We should be so kind and gracious. The Scriptures say this, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's nobody who has any place in this church or in those who are following Jesus to to act like they're high and mighty and, and prideful and better than other people. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To have a right understanding of ourselves. A right understanding of who God is. But listen to what else Paul says. Verse 24. Immediately after. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do you see that? All have fallen short. Absolutely. But all who confess Christ as their Savior, all who want to have a relationship with God, all who humbly come before the Lord and say, I want to know you. I'm going to sit at your feet this morning. I'm going to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to shape me freely given in Christ Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is tough for us because we have one of two responses generally to to this kind of thing. One is, is that we think to ourselves, okay, this is impossible, and so I'm just really pessimistic about it. I, like, I am not good at being poor in spirit. I feel pretty good about who I am. To mourn, I don't even know what that means. I don't know what it means to mourn. Blessed are the meek. Well, I don't want to be weak. Really, that's not what it means. To be meek means to be humble before God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look, I'm a pastor. There are times where reading the Scriptures is a chore, There's a, you know, or or I'm in a conversation with uh, someone about something and I'm thinking, oh, I just want to win this conversation. Like, that's my chief end is to win this. It's, it's not actually to be gracious and kind. Blessed are the pure in heart. Oof. Pure in heart? Like everything? Every, every, every aspect of who I am to be pure? Who is Jesus even talking to? And so maybe you have that kind of approach, you know, a little pessimistic about it. Or maybe you're an optimist and a little out of touch and you read this and go, Ooh, I'm killing it. Like this so describes how I feel about myself. And I think everyone would acknowledge that. And good news, because rejoice and be glad. There's a reward in heaven. Things just get better. Look, neither of those views are accurate. God is calling us into seeing ourselves, into seeing the world, into understanding who we are and what it means to follow Him based on what Jesus is telling us. Not on what we come up with or even our experiences. Now, I'm 45 years old. Some of you are older than I am. I've had experiences where I think, God, where are you? You're silent. Draw near to me. How could you let this happen? And what God does is when we come to Him, even in that moment, of, I'm keenly aware of my, 
my weakness in that moment, right? I'm keenly aware I'm not all-powerful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The moment we call to God, he offers us comfort. He offers us grace. He says, look, I know that things around you are confusing. I'm giving you my word so that you can have something that is clear and true that's not confusing. Move toward me. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's a tough one. What about in your marriage? Like, what if you try, what if you tried this on in your marriage? My goal for this week in my marriage is to make peace. And that doesn't look like this. Fine. You know, it doesn't look like, well, <laughs> I'm just going to bite my tongue and keep this to myself. And it means actually, like, what if your goal in marriage is to bring peace into your marriage by forgiving more than you should, forgiving more than the person deserves, overlooking things? And this doesn't mean being a doormat. This doesn't, I'm not speaking towards you know, things that might be abusive. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about all the other stuff that most of us deal with, all of us deal with. What if your goal in marriage this week was, okay, it's going to be tough, but for six days till next Sunday, because we have a confession of sin, and I'm really going to get back into it after that. But what if I really launch into this thinking to myself, I am, my goal this week is not to be right. It is not to win. It is not to have the last word. It is to make peace, because blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What if I'm going to live into God's promises as my number one goal? versus winning. Now, look, Jamie and I have been married 20-something years. 22, right? 22 years? Um, I know what it's like to like win an argument. It doesn't feel that good afterwards. It's a lie. That's what, that's what idols do. Idols convince you that this thing that you really want is going to give you what you really need. It's a liar. God's saying, you really want to know what your heart longs for, what you want. Here it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Seeing God for who He is and seeing ourselves for who we are allows us to be on a journey where God is taking us to a place where we can actually experience blessedness. Tim Keller wrote this. If you don't know who that is, it's fine. Just look him up. You cannot try the God of the universe. You have to have poverty of spirit. You can't say, I'll clean my life up. You have to say, my problems are beyond me. You can't say, I'm suffering. I'm having a bad patch. I just need a little boost. You have to say, I'm not coming to you, O Lord, because I need a boost. I'm coming to you, O Lord, because I owe you everything, and I owe you more than I can pay. I'm poor in spirit. I'm spiritually bankrupt. My problems are beyond me, and they're spiritual problems. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here and the people who have gathered around and saying, look, the only thing you have to bring to this relationship is this. I love you, and I treasure you. And I know that you're messed up, and I know that you're making mistakes, and I know you don't understand who I am. I don't want you to make it up, and I don't want you to wonder. Here's what my kingdom looks like. This is what I'm doing. Jesus sees the crowds, goes up on a mountainside, and sits down with them. The disciples come to him, and he begins to teach. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to be personal for us, and it's meant to be provocative in the sense that God's actually saying I'm giving you something that if you will live into this, both in your heart and in your life, it's going to lead you to rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Which leads me to this last idea that it's powerful. God's word for us is powerful. The scriptures tell us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us. That God's word is powerful for that. Not Brad's word. Not my ability to articulate it, but God's Word actually is powerful for us. And when you think of something powerful, what do you think of? Maybe you think of the uh, volcanic eruption. (laughs) 
yesterday under the sea. Did you hear about that? This, this volcano erupts under the sea. It sends a meter tsunami into certain areas of the world. Waves actually reach the west coast. And if you go online and look, you can actually see people who recorded the sonic boom from this thing from under the sea. And it goes, you know, the air goes, it goes out and it just pow. You can actually hear it. It's phenomenal. That's one rock on one planet in one solar system in one galaxy in the entire universe. That does not even come close to the kind of power that God actually offers us in the gospel. He offers us the true power of accessing His kingdom. It's powerful. The Sermon on the Mount is powerful because it gives us eyes to see what the kingdom of God is like. If you want to know what God wants to do in our hearts here at Grace Presbyterian Church, like how does, what does it mean for us to be mature and equipped disciples of Jesus as a people? This, this is what it is. To be a people who are understanding that, we're look, we're not better than anybody else. We're people who are loved by the King of heaven and earth. And so we can love other people. That we're a people who mourn. You know, maybe this year you've really mourned. Do you know God takes even that experience of your mourning and doesn't want it to be wasted? Actually, you're enabled because you've experienced His grace in the midst of mourning to come alongside people who are in their midst of mourning and say, I know this is tough. God is good. God's with you. I've got something more for you. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. We talked about that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, this is a good one. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, let me ask you this. Do you have any desire whatsoever to grow in your relationship with Jesus at all? Have you failed at attempting to follow Jesus at all? Does that bother you? If so, you know what that means? That means the Holy Spirit is evident in your life, that God is working in your life, that He's actually doing this. He's creating a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. For why? Because when we hunger and thirst for the things of God, the result is resurrection. In our marriages, in our raising our kids, in our friendships, in our community, when we hunger for the things of God in our hearts, the result is that God brings life to all things around us. He's gracious to us. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really knew me, you will know my Father as well from now on. You do know me, and you have seen Him. Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When you think about your life, what's the way you're going? What's the journey you're on? Jesus is saying He's the way. If you're on a journey right now and it feels aimless, or if you're thinking to yourself, you know, I, I am working really hard to do a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense, hear Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Part of wanting to believe that is this idea of hunger and thirsting for righteousness. He's the truth. He reveals to us the actual heart and the mind of God, as we read there in John 14. If you know Him, you know the Father. On the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus' ways lead to life. You know, as Christians, when we talk about what it means to be a disciple, why we want to be a disciple, it's not just so you can kind of get more, you know, spiritually fit and kind of feel good about how great you're doing as a, as a Christian. It is because when we lean into God's ways, it leads us towards experiencing His grace. It leads us towards experience resurrection. It leads us towards experiencing the things we'd want to see in the lives of our children, in our families, in our community. These are His ways. The way, the truth, and the life. Or consider Ephesians chapter 4 when you think about what happens to the blessed life. Right? This powerful nature of what Jesus is teaching about His kingdom coming to bear and realized in our hearts. 
For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not, uh, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do, do, you see the, do you see the paradigm over and over again? God wants you to know how much He loves you to do His handiwork in your heart and in your life so that you can tap into His kingdom, which is a place of life. You know, as the church, the reason Grace Presbyterian Church is here is so that we might experience God's grace personally and then express it to those around us. I wish I could tell you I do that perfectly. I don't. I wish I could tell you the people next to you do it perfectly. They don't. But here's the good news. There's grace for us, and we are God's handiwork, and He's actively at work shaping us. As we think about the Sermon on the Mount as we, for this next season, as you reflect on these Beatitudes, understand this. Asking God to do these things in your heart you are bringing the power of the kingdom of heaven into your life. You're bringing the power of God's grace into your life to say, Lord, would you make me more accurately understand what it means to be poor in spirit? Help me to be someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You know, help me to be a person who isn't indifferent or apathetic towards you. There are times in our spiritual journey where we feel apathy towards God. This is actually a call for us to pray that God will do this. And the good news is, is that God is saying, I'm going to do this in you. This is the good work, the, good, the completed work I'm going to do in your life. Embracing the kingdom of God means having faith in what's paramount. Is God's message of grace for you paramount? When your heart tells you that being right is paramount, remember that actually blessed are the poor in spirit. This humility of knowing who God is and knowing our place before Him. Or when your heart desires to be vengeful or angry, remember God's words, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, it's interesting. This is constant in the Scriptures. God only expects you to love, to be merciful, to be gracious to others in direct relationship to how much you think, how merciful He's been to you or how gracious He's been to you or how much He's loved you. In other words, how merciful should we be to one another? Well, how merciful has God been to us when you're moved to get the last word in or make the, the last point, I'm just going to remind you, kind of do some of the marriage therapy that I'm doing for myself. Is like, what if peacemaking is my goal? What if the goal is to, to love well? Because in doing that, I'm accessing God's kingdom in my own marriage, and in my own household, in my own family. Now, what narrative are you allowing to govern your life? I promise you there's one. You're either allowing the narrative of God's love for you to govern your life or another narrative. Now, some of you may not have any idea when I say this, what this is, but what do you think about the metaverse? Do you even know what this is, right? It's basically the virtual reality of this space out there that people are starting to invest money in and um, other currencies that aren't dollar bills, weird things, you know, and they're, they're accessing it, and what they're trying to do is create this alternate universe, this meta-universe, this, you know, meta means alongside, this metaverse where you can do life and you can like get contracts for work and it's like you're like looking around, virtual reality, all these different things. And um, in this metaverse, the, the reality is, is that um, as, as real as it is, it doesn't feel real enough. It's a narrative that redefines you and, and it's not enough. And there was this YouTube video of a woman who spent 18 hours in the metaverse with this Oculus. Have you seen these like VR things that people wear? She spent 18 hours in there. When she got off, she was so exhausted. It took her like two days of rest to recover because that version of reality just was tearing her up. 
I want you to really think about this year as we start 2022 is what narratives are you allowing to define you? Like, what lenses are you looking through to define what matters, why you matter, what journey you're on? And I want to challenge you, and maybe this is the text, but to think about Matthew 5, these first 12 verses of the Beatitudes, and think, okay, God, I want you to make this my narrative. I want you to make this my reality. I want you to do these things in me because your ways are good. And you lead to resurrection, and you lead to a place where I can experience life in my, in my own heart and in the lives of those around me. You know, God's word to us is powerful because it, it enables us to anticipate what Christ is going to do. Again, if you go back to Ephesians 2 and read that again, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. God's at work in us. If you want to know what he's doing in you, this is it, the Beatitudes. He's working these things in you, and it gives you space to know where to long for Him to work. God's grace is powerful for us. Um, this year, as we, again, as we make our way for the next, I think, seven weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've never read Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, this is actually meant to help define who we are and to understand what journey it is we are on as a people individually and as a church, and, and it's a good journey, okay? As we come to celebrate the supper, um, maybe even now be pondering, God, what, what, what of these things do I want to see more in my life? Maybe a hungering and thirsting for your word. Maybe I'm just, I really struggle being merciful to people. Maybe I'm not pure in heart. Maybe there's something that's plaguing you. Maybe peace has just never been a value for me. Maybe to pursue peace. Like, where is God going to work in your heart this year? Okay? Ask him to do that even as we celebrate communion. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are grateful for your promises to us that you tell us that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I would ask, Lord, for our church in 2022 to be a people who think about what it means to know you and to rest and to celebrate in the reality that we belong to you, that we are the children of God, and that you have loved us. And that you invite us to sit around, even at Jesus' feet, and to hear about what this kingdom of heaven is like, and to see it come to reality as we trust in you and in this relationship, and we emulate you in our lives, Lord. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, enable us to do that, that we might taste and see that you're good, that your grace is sure for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.